This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to a Men in Blazers pod special. A music pod special, because we love our music at Men in Blazers. It's one of the few things in life that helps bridge that aching chasm between Premier League weekends. It's actually our goal now to drop one music-centric pod a couple of times a year. Tracy Chapman, if you're listening. Hence this show, which features the work of not one, but two musicians. The remarkable Swede, Jens Leitman, a personal hero of mine. And out of Texas, Austin Brown of Parquet Courts, who's a magical bloke despite being a hardcore Manchester United fan. Both gents share an innate ability. They create soundtracks that make even me feel like, just fleetingly, that I have a soul. Jens and Austin both came into the crap part of Soho in person to talk to us about their work, their football proclivities, and our favourite topic, the conveyor belt of life. So here it is, our Men in Blazers, the musical pod special nothing became something turn itself inside out subatomic particle a cult hero swedish singer one of my single favorite songwriters of all time he's a poet really his lyrics charming human awkward often lovelorn always funny work which runs the gamut of getting a surprise hug from a loved one while you're cutting an avocado and slicing off your finger. Who hasn't done that? Or just feeling the compulsion to lie down on the floor and hug a bag of peas. If you're not familiar with his work, check out his singular masterpiece, Night Falls Over Cortadella. Any of his music, really. His new album, Life Will See You Now, comes out February 17th. I could not be more delighted to have him here in person, a gent whose work I revere, and not just because we share an appreciation for the same chord, B-flat 7. A welcome to the crap part of Soho, from Gothenburg, Sweden, Mr Jens Leitman. Hello. Hello. Thank you for that introduction. <sighs> I meant every single word, because I want to start by thanking you, Jens. Your music is so evocative, holds such a special place in my life. A couple of years ago, my grandmother died. I had to charge back to Liverpool mm. for the funeral. I got on the red eye to Manchester. It's a terrible flight. I'd be willing to bet there are more beers per head consumed on that flight than any other in the history of aviation. And I arrived at 5 a.m. in Manchester Airport, which is an airport that never works. The one baggage handler turns up when he can be bothered. I'm exhausted, surrounded by drunk English people who do what English people do when they have to wait for their bags for two hours which is just start to fight each other to the death. I was trapped. All I wanted to do was bury my grandmother. Hmm. And just when I was beginning to despair in humanity, on my iPhone, track of yours, maple leaves. Oh, a stunning song. Sample of the mamas and the papas, do you want to dance? Little hint of the avalanches in there. It's a song about lust in the early stages of a relationship, which is clearly destined to be doomed because a man and a woman continuously, hilariously miscommunicate. And just the injection of your voice 
your tone of humanity, your odd optimism. Listening to it over and over, I just knew everything was going to be okay. And not to be hyperbolic, Jens, but listening to your music, it's when I feel most human. Do a lot of people say that? I've heard it before, yes. And it always makes me very, very happy because that's what the music is constructed for. For what? To make you feel human. <laughs> to make me singular feel human. Yeah, exactly. You in particular. Oh, God love you, Jens. You are honestly a special one because you're one of the few artists that I fell in love with the first time I heard one of your songs, first time through. Mm. Postcard to Nina. Mm. Jaunty song on the surface. Can you describe it? Postcard to Nina, that song really wrote itself. I went to Berlin to see my old pen pal Nina and ended up having dinner with her family after she had just briefly announced to me that she wanted me to uh, act as her boyfriend because, well, her family wasn't very accepting that she wanted to be in a relationship with a woman. Um, so she wanted to use me as an excuse uh, for that very, very awkward dinner. It's a traditional religious family with a particularly traditional religious father. Mm. It's a very funny story and the hooks are magic. Yeah. But right at the end, you twist the song and the mood just inside out. And it's something you do very often. Mm. You create a joyful feeling and then you just twist it oh, slightly yeah. darkly right at the end. I don't want to write uh, comedy songs. I want to write songs that have a sense of humor, but I always try to end them, you know, to make sure that people understand that they are sincere. And I would only tell a story if it's a sincere and, you know, heartfelt story. I love this way you say the song is a story, because I thought I might offend you when I said this. That song, when I listened to it, it was more one of the best short stories I've ever read. Oh, thanks. But that's actually a problem I have. <laughs> My record label is like, maybe you should try to write more songs instead of stories, you know. <sighs> We're not a book publicist. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> but your songs, they are loaded with lines like, you don't get over a broken heart. You just learn to carry it gracefully. Mm -hmm. What inspires your music more? Is it other musicians? Is it movies? Is it stand-up comedians? I enjoy the poetry of, of comedy. I enjoy when, when you find someone who is just as much a poet as a comedian. I love Tig Notaro, for example. We were on tour back in 2009, before she got really famous. And, and just <laughs> the way she approaches comedy, it's like jazz or I don't know. There's something very in the moment of what she's doing, you know. And I had, a, I had another comedian, Todd Berry, with me on tour in, in Sweden, uh, which was, uh, I, I'm not sure if that was, <laughs> I'm not sure if that was a good fit, actually. What, Todd Barry in Sweden? Yes, exactly. Talking about Sweden, you grew up in a city that we consider in the Swedish diaspora to be incredibly musical, mm. Gothenburg. But I've heard you describe it once as not cool at all, known for bingo. We had the biggest bingo TV show in all of Sweden. Mm -hmm. I'd love to watch that television <laughs> show. We had shrimps. And we had a bad sense of humor. <laughs> you make it seem a little bit like Hull in England or Jacksonville, Florida. That's actually true. I've been wondering what the Gothenburg of, of England would be. Uh, I'm actually wondering what the Gothenburg of the States is. I think probably Jacksonville. But that setting, it has birthed a remarkable music scene. You, mm. Jose Gonzalez, bands like the Embassy. Sounds mm. like an upside-down place to grow up. You once said that you spent a lot of time being pushed around by popular kids who were the ones who listened to Morrissey. What an inverse world, <laughs> where the Morrissey lovers are the bullies and not the bullied. 
But you have become, outside of Sweden, a remarkable global traveller, really an itinerant human being, bouncing around the world, mm. a moving target, living in different cities, Melbourne, Berlin, playing off remote islands of Scotland in the wildlands of Alaska. What are you looking for there? I just want to see what my music sounds like in different locations to different people, you know? For example, I play that little island in Scotland just to see what, what, what's my music going to be like here? What's, what, what kind of context is this going to end up in? And it's nice to see how different it is from, from place to place. But, you know, what I really like is traveling around and playing in small places, places where people aren't spoiled with music. I love playing New York, but people here get, you know, they, they get to choose between 100 bands every night. Like the other year, I, I, I set up this tour of Sweden, the small towns, and I just had people book me to play in their living rooms, basically. It was such a beautiful thing because people are definitely not spoiled with, with music in these places. And I think that's really sad. I think it's really sad how music and entertainment and culture is so centered around the major cities. And I think that it's important to think of spreading the culture if people want you to come, you know. The town you went to in Alaska... Sitka. You, you were the only performer to go to Sitka that year. It's a heavy responsibility. Mm, um, but I remember people coming up to me afterwards and saying, thank you for coming here and with some, some music. It, it wasn't like, thank you, par particularly you, for coming here and playing <laughs> your songs. It's like, thank you for music. I was at your show in Williamsburg. I've seen you more times than I can remember. The older you get, it seems that you're looking for ever more intimate ways to close the gap between you and your audience. What's hmm. driving that? I think there just needs to be a connection for a show to be good. That's how I enjoy music myself. For example, when I started recording and I was looking into record labels, I was really into the label that I'm at right now, Secretly Canadian. I ordered records from them. I sent some dollars in an envelope to them and they would send me back records with like a handwritten letter just saying you know hey so exciting to get a an order from sweden what's sweden like and uh who are you why are you ordering records from us and uh here's a couple of extra records and here's a drawing my friend did you know and <laughs> and it was so personal because i ordered records from a lot of different places and yeah. uh a lot of those places would just send you the records in an envelope but these people were so involved personally, and that's what I want. I want to be very personally involved in the transaction between me and the crowd. A lot know? of our young listeners are listening to this thinking, wow, you used to have to mail off with real money to buy records and have them <laughs> mailed to you. But it's part of it also that you're such a personal writer, Jens, that part of you is just getting a little bit of sick of kind of writing in that same tone, in that same voice, through that same POV as this, this Jens Leitman character. I got very sick of him for a while, a few years ago. And uh, I wanted to write myself out of my own songs. I wanted to just get into writing other people's stories. And I actually did that for a long time. I wrote a lot of songs about other characters and other people's perspectives. In the end, it didn't work because I, I sent the <laughs> songs to my friends and they would, were like, we don't feel these songs as strongly, you know. It's, it's something happens when you're singing about other characters instead of singing from your own perspective. 
it, it gets a bit less personal, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is that emotional mm. connect that you felt with the record label when you sent off for those records that I feel when I listen to the music that you're willing to bullshit me, that yeah. you write just for me. Yeah. It is about that emotional connect. And you've experimented in so many ways that I find fascinating. The projects you take on postcards mm. where you're committed to write, record, release one song every week of the year, no matter what. Mm. And you posted them all, resulting in magic. A diary set to music is how I listened to it. You covered everything from loneliness, love, the Syrian refugee crisis, the Paris terror attacks. Mm. There's another body of your work, the chunk of time you spent in Cincinnati mm. on the ghostwriting project, devoting mm. crazy long days, listening to storytellers, shaping their tales into new material. Mm. You said afterwards, everyone has at least one really great pop song or novel, or movie in their life. Do we ends? Yeah, do we, do. do we really all have one? How do you know we're not all dead inside? <laughs> <laughs> that ghostwriting project came out of this particular feeling of wanting to write myself out of my own songs. And ghostwriting came out of, you know, because I have a very close connection with my listeners through my email and my small talk blog that I have. Which is fantastic. Oh, thank you. I, I mean, you, you, we should say you invite <clears throat> listeners to email you about anything. Mm. Probably the more personal, the better. Yeah. I imagine you are just a beneficiary mm. of incredible insight, just beautiful late night emails that people send to you, almost like an agony aunt. Yeah, I feel like a bank vault where they can store their personal stories. That a lot of people send me stories that they don't tell anyone else. But I'm a complete stranger, so they, they send me some really, really personal stuff. Yeah, I try not to tell my own secrets, even to myself, Jens. <laughs> but when I listen to your new album, Life Will See You Now, mm. and I hear you talk about your openness to other people's secrets, your opening track, To Know Your Mission, it has a line, I just want to listen to people's stories, hear what they have to say. Your friends say, just be a shrink then. But in a world of mouths... I want to be an ear. Mm. There's a lot of lofty, reflective questioning mm. on this album. A lot mm. of meta-tunes, a wisp of theology. Mm. What is the bonding focus of the Ten Songs? It's a lot about doubts and fears, and it's almost like a very existentialist record. I even quote some Kierkegaard on, on the record. <laughs> um, one of my favorite quotes, the one about marry and regret it, don't marry and you'll regret it too. Uh, whether you marry or you don't, either way, you'll wish you hadn't. And I think I'm just at a point in my life where I've started feeling like I see the consequences of my choices. So it's a lot about those choices and doubts. And that chain of, of, of choices and consequences, the song How We Met, the long version, mm. which to me jumped off as the quintessential Jens Lakeman song on this album. It crashes into life as if you just opened the front door and a great party in full swing. You essentially sing the history of evolution. And then the last verse, you get to, One day I asked if I could borrow your bass guitar. One magic night in an empty backyard, you kiss me quick under a sky full of stars. Mm. Like the lofty creation story just leading to something that could be consequential or not consequential. Well, exactly. That song is actually part of that too, because uh, the, the lines after that go... And that's the story how we met, the long version. And you can call it fate or chance, but we made it happen. That's sort of like a story about, you know, making the choices and, and making things happen, 
instead of just seeing everything as an evolution and you can't change anything and you know for me i was at a point in my life where where i was like i want to not just be a bystander in my own life you know my favorite song on the album it actually goes back to your Kierkegaard quote wedding in finister mm-hmm. about the time you played a wedding on the coast of france well to, to start off I, I play a lot of weddings it's like how i make a living these days because there, there's not much production involved for me to do that so compared to doing shows where i bring a band and i bring a crew and everything i, I don't make any money from that but there's a song on my first record called if you ever need a stranger to sing at your wedding and people took that very literally uh, and they started booking me for weddings, and, and I started there's loving a, it. There's a beautiful video on YouTube of you playing a, a surprise appearance at an Australian wedding. Yes. Just turning up. It's absolutely, it makes you want to get married all over again. <laughs> so it's something that I just started doing, and I've been doing for 10 years now. And at this wedding, you encounter the bride having a cigarette right before the ceremony. Mm, exactly. We had a bit of a deep conversation about last-minute doubts and... It wasn't about should I do this or should I not, but you know when you stand there and you realize that when you open one door, all the other doors are closing. It's it's kind of a, it's a really scary feeling. I, I can totally relate to that. Yeah, she's looking out the ocean and she said, "You ask her how she's feeling," mm. and it is a beautiful piece of songwriting. She just turns around to you and she says, "I feel like a five-year-old." watching a 10-year-old shoplifting, Mm. a 10-year-old watching a 15-year-old French kissing, Mm. a 15-year-old watching a 20-year-old chain smoking, and a 20-year-old watching the 30-year-old... Vanishing. We've got a phrase on this show, Jens, the conveyor belt of life. That chorus, that is the conveyor belt of life. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And the song ends with you saying... Oh, please distract me from every life unlived, mm. every path I have not taken. The heart is still a little kid. Yeah. It sounds better out of your mouth than it does out of mine, Jens. It sounds beautiful out of your mouth, too. Oh, you're a beautiful man. Last one on your lyrics. There is a lyric I love from one of your songs. The world moves on. You say the world just shrugs and keeps going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. I'm going to say it again. The world just shrugs and keeps going. That is possibly the most depressing thought of all time Mm. and this goes back to whether the lyrics come out of your mouth or my mouth because out of your mouth it sounds lovely even your sadder songs they contain a hint of optimism i've got to ask you where does that optimism come from that sense of optimism i'm not an optimist myself i'm i would say i'm a defensive pessimist you know i I think everything is gonna (laughs) go really bad and then i make preparations to make sure they don't but in my music there's something happening where Every time I sit down with a song, I have the choice to be a pessimist or an optimist and to how I want to look at the world. So the music sort of opens a door for me to be able to look at the world and, and see it more beautifully and, and, and try to be uh, more optimistic about it. You just um, change the way I listen to your music, knowing now that it comes out of the mouth of a man that makes me feel so great, but he himself is always braced for the apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I like it even more now, Jens. Last question. We're in a bar with a great jukebox, the best jukebox of all time. I give you a dollar, enough for you to put on two songs. Mm. What would they be? I would play a band from Gothenburg called Shit Kid. Uh, and they have a song called Oh Please Be a Cocky Cool Kid. 
which is such an amazing song. They're, they're one of the greatest live bands I've ever seen. They just have that feeling like they couldn't give a shit about anything. So the other song would be Bread and Butter by El Perro del Mar, an old friend of mine. You might know that song. Absolutely. And it's just a beautiful song about how we all come from the same place and we're all the same, really. And um, it's very poetic in, 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 the, in the lyrics, uh, how she sings about how we all come from bread and butter. We all come from the same belly button. And the, the words just evolve in this beautiful way during the song. Um, we all come from the same belly button. Mm-hmm. Please, God, we'll all end up in <laughs> Gothenburg. Jens Leitman, you're a remarkable bloke. Your new album, Life Will See You Now. Absolutely fantastic. Out February 17th. Thank you. Thank you. I know exactly where I was when I first saw you the way I see you now through these eyes. Our next guest is Austin Brown, the singer-guitarist court snakeskin do by himself oh i love the values and the sound of this band more than i can say lots of loneliness talk questioning and wire like guitar noise which is strangely energizing to immerse yourself in the band's fifth album human performance out now and perhaps not surprisingly as that album includes a track named one man no city my texan born guest is a Manchester United fan. Despite that, welcome to the pod. Yeah, happy to be here. Mr. Austin Brown. Yeah. Oh, it's so good to have you here. It's it, an honor, I have to say. It really is. You're from one of my favorite places in the world, the state of Texas. Absolutely, yeah. Beaumont, Texas, which you just described to me as? It's True Detective season one. Yeah. And that's it. Oh, it's also the home of George Jones. George Jones, that's right. Not yeah. the first place that comes to mind. In the United States, when you think traditional Premier League football fan territory, <laughs> Austin, no. tell us, how'd you get sucked in? I'm a more recent uh, adopter of football, soccer. I started uh, touring the world with this band um, four or five years ago or something like that. And the football culture in Europe is inescapable, especially in England. And um, I just became fascinated with asking people who they supported and why and, um, you know, who they hated and why and what the rivalries were and, you know, who their favorite players were. And, um, you know, the first person that I met in London was a Manchester United fan. The second person I met was a Manchester United fan. That's where they all live, all the United fans. In London, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, in East London, yeah. yeah. And then the third person I met was a Liverpool fan. So I was like, great, I've got my squad and I know who I don't like. And <laughs> I'm going to start following now. And it was right as Sir Alex Ferguson had left. Yep. So I was entering in with a new era. I felt like... Um, a brave new era. Yeah. Oh, you have known, you've known some suffering. We will talk about yeah. it. But I did read a great interview you did with The Guardian mm-hmm. where you talked about how your discovery of Premier League football and United just was timed so well because it came when your love of the NFL and the Houston Texans was souring. You said, the more I watched American football and learned how (laughs) up it was, the less I could responsibly even watch it. So you gave up gridiron and decided it would become, I love this part, your mission to support a team in every other sport. And so the Guardian report, he has been watching Aussie rules, cricket, rugby and soccer. 
Yeah, that's right. And I, I stuck with the soccer pretty religiously at this point, yeah, obsessively. You're going to be on our other podcast right after this, Aussie Rules today. <laughs> but the astonishing part of this story is what it was around that time that you started to listen to our crap the uh-huh. Men in Blazers podcast, I believe while you were touring Europe, it was a Game of Thrones references that sucked you in. Absolutely, yeah. And going back to giving up football, I, I want to tell the story. I think that I might be single-handedly responsible for the, the Houston, Texas GM deleting his Twitter account. It was um, around the time of the NFL draft when Johnny Manziel was in the draft. Yeah. I'm a big Johnny Manziel fan. Still. Still. Still, Even yeah. more so now, probably. Yeah, I still think they should have drafted him. And they went with Jadavian Clowney instead of Manziel. And I'm still upset about that. I think the jersey, I just wanted Manziel Texans jersey. And I knew it was inevitably going to fail, but I wanted one anyway. And, you know, they passed over him like a lot of other teams did responsibly. But I uh, tweeted at Texans GM. <laughs> That's his Twitter. That was his Twitter account. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, at, you know, at Texans GM. And I, you know, tweeted at him this is my uh, weekly tweet at Texans GM, f*** you. (laughs) (laughs) And I know that you're going to see this on your BlackBerry because you only have 66 followers, you know, and you have your alerts turned on still. Yeah. And um, he tweeted back at me, it's just a game. And that's when I gave up because I felt like I couldn't responsibly follow football for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And then the GM... He didn't understand it. ...tells me it's just a game. Yeah. If the guy in charge of hiring players is now on the same level as me, I just can't do that. I, that's, I mean, imagine Josie Mourinho in a press conference yep. afterwards after a loss. Yep. Relax. Guys, it's just a game. Guys, <laughs> Could you imagine? Things in this. <laughs> yep. But there's not, though. Yeah, and that, There's and really it, not. And as it happens, you have gone full circle because you did get your own Johnny Manziel in the end. You got Memphis to pipe. Yeah, so I love you, Memphis. Yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. But he brings everything. Yeah, uh, that Johnny M brings to the table and more. But we've missed a leap in the story. We've yeah, missed a pardon. leap in logic. Manchester United, then. Yeah. How? Whence? Whither? How did this happen? I've gotten asked that question a lot, and I, I actually love it. By your own conscience? <laughs> no, never. I, I love United. I have no problem with it, and I love that people um, find it conflicting. I like that people think that because they spend a lot of money on players that it makes it somehow... A moral conflict. I, I don't. I don't find that morally conflicting at all. I love it. I love it when they, <laughs> when they bought Paul Pogba. I remember being in uh, Eindhoven in the Netherlands, at an Irish pub with our bass player Sean. And one thing that I do love about the Irish is that they will put a bar everywhere in the world, and they will have a TV on, and if there's soccer, it'll be open <sighs> and it'll be on. They're the Ray Kroc of beer. Yeah, absolutely. God bless them for that. And, you know, the bar was packed, day one of the Euros, and I remember seeing Paul Pogba lining up for France. And I, I love watching soccer with Sean because I get to explain it to him the whole time, and he's really into it. Paul Pogba comes on, and it's like, you know, he used to play for Manchester United. You know, now he's at Juventus. I really wish that he could be on our team, but he'll never come back. He's too expensive. And then a few months later, they bought him. And I was just like, you know, that's great. I love that. The Houston Texans GM must have got in touch with Manchester United. But for <laughs> God's sake, just from experience, do what this man says. Yeah. Else darkness ensues. I do want to say, though, so much of Parquet Court's ideology, your DIY ideology. Right. I mean, your songwriting is about, quote, 
being implicit in consumerist systems and how we, all we do is consume, consume, consume. Mm-hmm. I think that's a quote from you from the <laughs> distant past. Manchester Sounds United, like yeah. their hundreds of corporate partners, including Official Snack, Mr. Potato by Mammy Double Decker, and of course, Jan Martia, their official tractor engine. How do you rationalize your adoration of Manchester United, the ultimate in kind of corporate sporting enterprises? Isn't it a bit like cheering for Microsoft? It would be a conflict if the money didn't go back into the team. If we weren't getting a Ibrahimovic or a Pogba whenever we want players like that. And we weren't you know, going to win the Premier League this season. <laughs> oh my God. If Unfortunately, we w- this is a podcast and you cannot see how Austin Brown's eyes just lit <laughs> up when he said that statement. You really believe that and I adore that. And ultimately, the eyes lighting up is proof that football is purely emotional and not rational. It's a bit different, right? I think like football and soccer, it is artistic and there's artistic elements. There's a lot of emotional elements and, and there's things that the game shares with something like music and um, there are ethical quandaries involved. But ultimately, you want your team to win and you want to hold a trophy. The trophies in music or in the art world are much more subjective. And I don't find that conflict crossing over, really. (sighs) Give Pogba a Grammy right now. In fairness (laughs) to you, you did come to United in the Dark Ages, the David Moyes era. I feel like I started at the beginning, You did, as far as I'm concerned. Like Drake, what I call the good old days you came to United. I mean, one of the things I love about new American Premier League fans, many of those who are somewhat new to the Premier League, have just never known Manchester United as a Death Star. I mean, you've only known United as a mediocre, mid-level Europa League aspirant. Yeah, I mean, I look back on the Moyes years with fondness. (laughs) I really do. It it felt like, you know, a new team starting from the bottom. Scrapping. Scrapping. Much to prove. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, some aging, unknown (laughs) veterans like Ryan Giggs. (laughs) Yeah. And... And they lost a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and so you feel like you were, your, your fandom was forged in hardship. Like me, Austin, do you miss Louis van Gogh as much as I do? I miss Johnny Evans. <laughs> <laughs> I miss anyone that's ever played for United that I got to see play that's not there anymore. You I dream of the John O'Shea, <laughs> Wes Brown, kind of Johnny Evans back yeah. three that never was. You're a gatherer. I want Louis van Gaal to be there. Daddy. I, 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 daddy you know, back. Louis van Gaal's army. I mean, the antics. Especially towards the end. I felt like he was really hitting his stride <laughs> with the falling over. The press conferences were getting... <laughs> Where he called journalists, fat man. Fat man. So good. Hey, you, fat man. Yeah. So good. I can't tell you how many times I've woken up on tour with a, a bit of a headache or confusion for whatever reasons and you can imagine and thinking, for what is this world twisted? <laughs> In what you, for world we live? You know, I often think about it, especially when he demanded his players to be more horny. I think yeah. he's just a man ahead of his time. And I think his wisdom, it's going to take a little while to sink in, but we're going to retrospectively, we're going to hail him as a genius. I mean, you, you've got a line in the title track of human performance. So fewer trials when a life isn't lonely. That line just captures his decline and fall just perfectly for me. But from a purely punk perspective, you might not have liked him as a manager. But uh, when I think about how you approach your football fandom, you must have just adored him as a character. 
as boring as the games could have been. They're yeah. not the point, though, really, are they? Because the press conference afterwards. <sighs> That's why we watch. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 90 minutes of sideways passes and nil-nil draw. Well, Just the foreplay. Can't wait. Absolutely. <laughs> What's he going to say this time? I can't wait. It <sighs> never, they never lasted long enough. <laughs> the press conference. Yeah. They never did. Jose Mourinho. You hated him mm-hmm. as Chelsea Mourinho. Oh, yeah. But you love him now, I bet. Greatest manager of all time. Why stop there? The greatest man of all time. Greatest man of, yeah, I love Mourinho, and I, what do and you I love about him? that everyone hates him. I love that he's hated. I mean, the same reason that I love Zlatan because I hated him so much when he played for PSG. I hate Diego Costa. Hate him, but if he played for United. But if the Houston's GM is listening, he's probably even now scurrying down (laughs) towards Shea Costa to try and make that deal that will bring him forever to Old Trafford. It's the switching of allegiances and the the emotions that seem entrenched, but your ability to absolutely ditch those emotions when they play for your team. Is that what appeals to you about all of this stuff? Understanding emotions takes um, perspective and, and you gain perspective in time. When Mourinho came to United... I realized why I hated him. It was because he was the guy on the other team and a hateable guy. But when he's your hateable guy, it, it's uh, so much more reason to love him. I mean, he's the ultimate punk rock manager to some degree because the thrill of yeah, marching you know, behind ne- his banner <coughs> is that you never know just how long the great times are going to last before he burns the entire place down. <laughs> I never thought about it that way, but I think it makes total sense. Also, what makes total sense? Your favorite player. Marijuana Fellaini. <laughs> Greatest of all time. Greatest of all time. He started with United whenever I did, so I felt a, a fellow kinship You were both there. the new boys. That, yeah, that's right, yeah. And I had this long-running theory that uh, has yet to be unproven, except by facts, that <laughs> United's never <laughs> lost a game when Fellaini is starting. There's a, a bar a few blocks away from me. Uh, in Williamsburg, where I live, called Banter. Where there's a bar called Banter. Yeah. Oh, America. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a soccer bar. Yeah. They'll open at 7 a.m. if the game's on at 7 a.m. And yeah. if I'm awake and in town, I'll you be there. You stumble out at 7 a.m. to watch Premier League football. Or in, in. you know, it's depending. In. <laughs> I love it. You'll stumble into Banter. And uh, <laughs> it happened just a few days ago when Fellaini scored. Every time he scores, I just yell, "Greatest of all time!" And the whole bar <laughs>, laughs. But I mean it in a sincere way. I love him, too, to be candid. He's like an angry Belgian dandelion. Is the enforcer. When he was at Everton, he always used to appear in my dreams. Whatever I was dreaming about, like mummy, daddy, flying, <laughs> failure, death. Sometimes just shuffling in off stage left, Marwan Fellaini would always just shuffle in. I found it to be an immensely calming presence. And he still does occasionally appear. The more maligned he is, actually, the more yeah. that I love him. A related but different question. Which United player would be most likely to listen to Parquet Courts at Old Trafford before kickoff? Michael Carrick, I think. <sighs> Old school Carrick. Yeah, I think that he's an intellectual football player. And um, I think that he's someone that could get pumped up on good lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, so interesting. Can I, th- I, think you know, I, Juan I wish I could say Paul Pogba, but yeah, I just, I not, mean, I'm not kidding myself. Yeah, not happening. <laughs> no. Juan Mata, listen, yeah. listening to you to get his head right. Yeah, I could see that. 
And then blogging about it later? Probably. Yeah. Giving your album three and a half out of five matter stars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, giving you a rating. Or, or what about sad Wayne Rooney? Mm. Listening to Borrowed Time before heading off to the bench. <laughs> I, I was feeling nostalgic for the days <laughs> when my thoughts dripped onto my head from the ceiling. I would have a hard time envisioning uh, Wayne Rooney listening to any music at all, but... I could see why he could relate to that. Yeah. It's probably more of a Bruno Mars fan. <laughs> I, I'm thinking uh, traditional folk music <laughs> or like um, <laughs> pub songs, you know, like stuff you sing when you're drunk. And <laughs> oh, I've got to tell you, you know when you've really made it as a Manchester United fan in mm-hmm. the world of music, because Manchester United will ask you to come to Old Trafford and curate the 10 songs. Yeah. or so, whatever dozen songs that they play before the team take the field. It's like the highest honour. They always ask like an old footballer, like a, it's always Rio Ferdinand and someone from like a teen pop band that's currently dominating England. What, what track would you pick to just make United take the field in the biggest of games against Hull City and just wipe the floor with them? What track would you choose, Austin? If I was picking for me, I would want to hear Sparta FC by the fall. <sighs> or Totally Wired Crowd would by go the mad. fall. Crowd would go mad. Yeah, and, and Marky e. Smith would be a bit pissed off because he's a City fan, <laughs> so that would make me happy too. <laughs> Anything to make Marky e. Smith uh, mad. But aside from the real football, you spend the hours of your time making music, but you've said that when you get tired of playing music, EA Sports FIFA, it's always there for you. After the first year of being on tour, I came home, um, had like a month off for the first time in six, seven months or something, and I told myself, I'm going to buy the biggest (laughs) television I can find, (laughs) and I'm going to get a PlayStation 4, and then I got FIFA, and it's the only game I got. You're living the dream. (laughs) Yeah. So I mean, I was doing that this morning before I came here, doing some drop-in matches on pro clubs. I've created my own uh, player. He looks exactly like me. (laughs) His name is Sleepy Brown. He's box-to-box midfielder. He's got the intelligence of Michael Carrick. Yep. But the skills of Paul Pogba. Oh, and your face. And my face. It's a perfect package. Yeah, yeah. We need to get a screenshot of this and show it to the world. Last question for you, because I love this story. When you first expressed interest in playing the guitar... Your dad, an accountant, and I believe an ardent ZZ Top fan. Is that right? Absolutely. God, love. He gave you some advice. Do you remember what it was? He taught me uh, three chords. You know, it was G, C, and D7. (laughs) And he said, you learn those three chords, and you can be a star. In country music. (laughs) You are a beautiful man. Thank you. When United do win the title, which I'm pretty yeah. sure they will in the next three years. The I think they're going to win more than one title this season. The p- <laughs> the At pa- least three. The pain How many that, are there? Four? The pain that I will experience will be somewhat mitigated, only somewhat, by yeah. the, just the joyful, boyish delight that fills your eyes when you talked about it earlier on in this pod. Austin Brown, it's a delight to be with you. You have a new single coming out in February. It's a remix of a song called Captive of the Sun, and the remix is featuring Bun B. Austin Brown, I say to you, courage and passion. There it is. From sad nap indie pop to nipple-tingling American rock, two musicians brought together by their love of balladeering. 
I do love balladeering and willingness to articulate the narrative of life. A massive thanks to Jens Leitman and Austin Brown of Parquet Courts for joining us on this Men in Blazers music pod special, coming into the crap part of Soho and surviving to tell the tale. Jens' new album, Jens's beautiful new album, Life Will See You Now, is available as of today. And look out for Parquet Court's new single, Captive of the Sun. It's remixed by Bun B. Thanks to producers JW and Lexi T, our very own Bun B, for making this beauty happen. And to you, dear listener, courage. <laughs>